0: Hey, welcome back to Dear Baseball Gods, this is episode 37 and today we're going to talk about basic things that pitchers forget. So one of the things that really more like blows my mind than it frustrates me is how even as you continue to climb the ladder and increase your knowledge and your experience of doing something, you you continue to make the same relatively silly, relatively basic mistakes. So, and and I felt it recently on a, uh, a trip to Vegas a year uh, coming up on a year ago. So I went to Vegas with my business partner, Lucas. Uh, I, I like to play poker a little bit and I'd been doing a lot of reading. i had been playing consistently. I've been doing pretty well. I've been winning and he'd never played before. So on our trip there, I explained pretty much everything I had learned. I tried to summarize like the five or six books I'd, I'd read and the, uh, the experiences that I had. And I explained him like the biggest, most important things that I thought he needed to know to not screw up. And long story short, I made all of those same mistakes that I told him not to make on that trip. And I got pretty much cleaned out. So it just reminded me that no matter how many times I beat it into a young pitcher's head that this is the thing you do in this situation, or this is the way you conduct yourself, or this is the way you do this thing or that thing. It just takes a lot of repetition for it to become second nature. You can't just tell them at one time, and it just sticks. It just apparently it's not the way it works, and we take for granted how much experience plays into things really, really sticking. So, I'm gonna go over a list. I think I've got well, what do I got here. I got seven things I'm gonna complain about the, that are really just pretty much basic things that are obvious things that still. Even with some of the, the older, more established, better, smarter kids that we have, uh, they just continue to go overlooked. So number one, what mo- uh, warming up means. So warming up, for, for most young pitchers, it means throwing without any regard to what kind of, thro- kind of throwing they're doing until their arm feels loose enough to throw a ball hard. So... I spend most of my winter throwing program teaching kids to have a routine. So they do drill A from 30 feet, drill B from 45 feet, drill C from 60 feet, drill D uh, to stretch them back out until their max distance. Then they come back in, they go from the stretch, they go from the windup, they throw all three of their pitches uh, at progressively harder speeds, get fully warmed up, you know, go from there. But the thing that warming up means. To high-level pitchers is getting your arm loose getting your mechanics kind of grooved in so there's always a couple of drills that are included that help to make sure you're on track and you're feeling yourself for that day and then getting all of your pitches warm which means you've thrown all of them and start to get a good feel for them so that they're ready to go into the game and I liken this to a carpenter going up to a job site so you know, a carpenter arrives on a, a distant job site, and he's got his toolbox. And in his toolbox, he's got his saw, and his drill, and his hammer—all these different tools that he needs to do the job properly that day. And as a pitcher, you're going to go on the mound with a number of different tools. So you have your fastball, your slider, your changeup, your curveball, whatever. But within all those, there's still a second subset. There's your slider from both the windup and the stretch. There's your slider from uh, that you'd throw down the middle in a two-zero count. And then there's a slider that you throw on the outside third of the plate in a 0-1 count. And then there's a slider that you would bury in the dirt two baseballs off the plate when you're ahead 0-2. Those are all separate tools. They're not the same one, and you have to find a feel for all of them. Ditto with the curveball. did it with the changeup. You have a, a bunch of different locations for each pitch that you have to establish before you go out on the mound. Because if you haven't thrown fastballs effectively to the glove side of the plate, and then you go to the game, how do you expect to do it? On the game mound, you're going out there without a tool. Uh, you don't know that that tool's in your toolbox. You're just hoping it's there when you arrive. So, still to this day, and I had to yell at I yell at him the other day. One of our Division One commits, who's entering his junior year in high school, he uh, is going through rehab, and he's warming up to throw one of his full speed bullpens. And I'm watching him warm up, and he's just like playing catch. And I yell at him. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Do a drill. We've been over this a million times. You shouldn't just be throwing aimlessly. You're not playing catch like a shortstop in the big leagues throwing in front of the dugout before a game. You have a purpose. You need to be doing mechanical things to keep you uh, in tune and get your mechanics kind of grooved in. So he does. So he goes through all those. Then he gets on the mound. I'm like, are you ready? He says, yeah. I'm like, no, you're not ready. You haven't thrown one change up, and you have not thrown a single curveball, and you're going to throw both of those today at full speed. How can you say that you're ready if you haven't done either of those things? You're not ready. All you've done is throw the ball hard. And it just it blows my mind how many pitchers do that. That's not uncommon at all that he did this, and this is one of our most committed, talented, intelligent kids. So warming up means getting every single tool that you will use in the game up to a hundred percent before you enter that game. And if you're going on the mound, if you're going to throw for the New York Yankees in a, uh, you know, in a private workout, you wouldn't jump on the mound, tell Mr. Steinbrenner you're ready when you hadn't thrown a slider yet. You're not ready until you've thrown everything you would throw in a game in your practice session and and your practice session, your warm-up session, should reflect the fact that you're going to get loose all of those different tools. So, you know, um, that's just sort of where we're looking there but a warm routine needs to be specific it needs to be very uh it needs to be very very regimented and have a very specific purpose it's very underrated so number two practice throws matter really more than game throws um you know most pitchers think they're going to make their money when they get up on the mound for their bullpen but all the throws that come before that they matter in finding that little bit of feel and developing better feel uh, for every single pitch so especially for pitchers who are working to improve upon something you know I kinda use the analogy of riding a bike I ask kids hey the first time you rode a bike did you ride it down a steep hill they say no yeah cuz you would crash and you probably wouldn't be here today you would have died uh, tumbled down this hill whatever so if you wouldn't ride a bike down a steep hill On your first try if you would go slow and kind of get the feel for it why wouldn't you do that same thing when you're learning a new pitch or trying to improve a pitch that you currently have and every time you touch a baseball you should be trying to improve some aspect of it so even for pro pitchers every time they throw they throw a ball and this is especially true for relievers who don't throw hard really between their outings they really only throw hard in the game they have to find a feel for the baseball, whether it's their fastball, their chain-up, their sinker, their slider, their curveball, whatever, they have to find a game like feel at a lower speed. So I knew what my fastball, what my game fastball felt like, what it was supposed to feel like at 56 miles per hour. I knew what my curveball felt like at 59 miles per hour. I knew what my cutter felt like at 46 miles per hour. I knew I knew the feel of all those pitches, and I could still try to get that feel, like, okay. Even though I'm not throwing full speed, this is where my hand has to be in a game to get my cutter to cut the way it's supposed to. And you learn to control your body better when you're trying to replicate that feel at slow speed. So, and if you're learning a pitch, not just trying to can keep yours finely tuned, if you're learning it, then you have to slow down a little bit to allow yourself to kind of consciously control your hand, your hand position, all that stuff, your fingers, your wrist action as you're going through the delivery. So. Change-ups don't get better when you're learning it by throwing it at full speed because you just don't know how to do what you're asking it to do because there's the grip and then there's the hand action. So we start slow, and we make sure we increase compliance slowly. And to me, that means 7 or 8 have to be correct out of every 10. So when you can throw 7 or 8 change-ups correctly at 50 miles per hour, then we can back you up a little bit. You can throw them at 55, and now you might only throw 5 or 6 correctly at a 10. But then we build that back up. And then when it's at 7 or 8 out of 10 again, then we can back you up and add more speed. And we do that over and over and over until now you can throw nasty changeups at full speed on the mound without thinking about it. So the practice throws matter more than the game throws. But most pitchers don't take that mindset. They just kind of go willy-nilly through their practice throws without really paying attention to them. And then they get on their the bullpen mound, and they're ready for their 35 pitches, of which You know, they're going to throw 15 fastballs, 10 changeups, 10 sliders, whatever. And that's just not a lot of repetitions to get those pitches to really develop. So we have to focus more on the slow speed, on the practice throws. We need to spend less time throwing weighted balls at walls because that's not developing control and command and feel. We have to use all those lighter throws that we get and get them in a higher higher, uh, quantity so that we can really develop the command and the feel and the off-speed arsenal that we want. Number three, so everything affects the body. This is something that you start to appreciate when you're older, especially when you start to realize that you're not immortal. Um, But when you're trying to go out there with the same tools every single time, meaning the same velocity, the same break on your curveball, the same break on your slider, you start to realize how much your routine and the amount of sleep you get the strength training that you do, the arm care that you do, how much throwing you do throughout the week, all those things, um, you know, the, the quality of the food you eat, all that stuff, they start to affect your body and you start to feel and they start to add up. So throughout a given week, you might, you know, make 700 throws in a normal week. And uh, you know, granted, most of those are probably slow, slow speed, playing catch or whatever. If one week you bump up to 900 throws, you're somewhere along that, somewhere within that week, You're gonna suffer. And for me, I could always tell when my arm was fatigued because my curveball just wouldn't bite quite as well. I couldn't get on the inside of my changeup quite as well. My fastball just didn't have like the life where it seemed like easily trying to kind of shoot by a guy when I was rested. So all these things add up. You can't just go through your week and you know, hey, I'm gonna do a little this in the weight room, do a little that that in the weight room, or I'm gonna do this much arm care or that much arm care. It needs to be consistent. And then once we're consistent with it, then we can start to make small changes that are unlikely to have a, you know, a big deleterious effect or, um, just a, a negative effect by just overly fatiguing us. You know, if you have a big swing and this is the one of the thing, the motor's arm sleeve tends to, uh, or tries to measure, if you have a big swing in your workload, you're going to fatigue something. And then those muscles are not going to protect either your elbow ligament or your shoulder, or they're just going to produce subpar performance. So that's what we're trying to avoid. And we just have to re- just remember that everything affects the body. That routine is King and that slowly it just takes time to fine tune that routine. And that's why we have to go back to how do you throw? Cause if you can't add a million throws per week, we have to get more out of the same amount of throws that we do. So we want to get higher quality. You know, when we can't raise the quantity. Number four, timing matters. And this is one thing that blew my mind. Uh, when I first started traveling with uh, our Warbird Senators baseball teams, I watched how our, our kids warmed up. I watched how the other teams warmed up. And the thing that was consistent among pretty much everyone, our own kids included, and I straightened this out in a hurry, was that they just go out there. All right, game time's at 1 o'clock. We get allowed on the field at 12.15. You know, tournaments are kind of sketchy. Sometimes you don't get on the field till half an hour before the game. So, Game time's at 1. We get on at 12.15. We go through our infield routine, outfield routine, you know, playing catch, all that stuff, getting loose. And then our starter kind of goes in the corner, starts throwing the ball at some random time, Uh, you know, goes through a very subpar routine that we just discussed. And then within five minutes, he's declaring that he's ready, goes in the bullpen, bing, bang, boom, throws a bunch, He's done. He's walking in, and it's 1.40. Or I'm sorry, it's 12.40. And they go sit down the dugout, and then they stare at the field, and they stare at the clouds, and they stare at the sun, and um, I guess like the grasshoppers and whatnot for the next 20 minutes until the game starts. And in most cases with the other teams, their coaches weren't down there accompanying them. Uh, These kids on both sides of the ball, I'm not saying – I mean, my team, this is our first year, and we didn't have – Everything controlled, I think, at that, at that moment. It's been a learning process. But they don't go down there with any sort of sense of time. They don't know when they're supposed to be in the, in the dugout. They don't know when they're supposed to be starting their first set, their second set, their outfield throwing, any of that stuff. Uh, and they don't bring their water down there. They don't bring a Gatorade down there. They don't bring a jacket down there if it's chilly. They basically just, like, run down there with their glove and their ball and their catcher. They play catch. At some point, whenever they're done, they're done. They come back in, and they wait, and they get cold before they go back out to the game. So if you watch a college pitcher or a pro pitcher get loose, everything is very regimented. And again, a lot of these are signing the same, but they're, they're distinct, different moments in time for a, a pitcher, especially a starting pitcher. So, you know, a starting pitcher's routine typically starts in the clubhouse if it's a pro guy, so you get there early. You stretch. You go through your mental routine. You do all that stuff in the comfort of the clubhouse. You know, you shower, um, put on your liniments or whatever, your icy hot or your hot stuff, and get everything where it needs to be, flexibility wise, and heat wise, and comfort wise, and psychol uh, psycho- psychology wise. And then you head out to the field, usually with an hour or forty five minutes for the game. So then you start your routine. Typically about forty five minutes for the game. You run your polls You do your calisthenics in the outfield. You do arm circles and dynamic stretching and any any of the stuff that you want to do to get yourself warm again, to get the blood flowing, to help reduce the amount of throws you have to make to get ready to go in the game. So that stuff typically takes 10, 15 minutes, whatever. Some guys like to romance it and take their time. Others like to just go down to the field when it's ready to kind of go. And then the first thing you do is you throw in the outfield. So you start close, drill A, drill B, start to back up stretch it out as far as you want. For me, I would then throw as hard as I could when I was farther out. I will throw it on a line as hard as I could, at you know, 180, 240 feet. And then I'd come back in, I'd throw bullets all the way back into about 60 feet. And then I would start to warm up my breaking ball, my changeup, which I had thrown a couple of them. we were uh, short starting out. And then when all three of my pitches, or all four of my pitches are at full 100% effort, then we go into the bullpen. Then I start over. All right, now we've got about 15, maybe 20 minutes before the game starts. So I start over, fastballs as hard as I can off the mound, because that's number one. We're just trying to find, can I throw a strike at full speed? Full speed at first feels out of control, feels kind of scary. So let's get at 100%, which 100% feels like 105%. And then when 105% feels like 99%, then we start to command the ball a little bit better. We start to rein it in Then, okay, I've commanded the middle of the plate. Now let's go to one side, then let's go to the other side. Then let's start to throw breaking balls. Let's command the middle of it first when we've proven that we can throw a breaking ball for a strike, then we'll go to one side and go to the other. Then we'll go to the change up. Start down the middle of the plate, start, you know, the wide mouth of the funnel. So change ups for strikes, then to both sides. Then we start to mix, you know, fast change, fast curve. Uh, and again, going through all of our tools. So for me, I throw fastballs, you know, in the bullpen, it's typically just middle and thirds in the game, middle halves, thirds, corners, up, and, uh, and bounce. But, you know, in the bullpen, middle fastballs, thirds to both sides, elevate a couple. With change-ups in the bullpen, middle, arm side third, and I'd bounce a couple on the plate curveballs in the, in the bullpen. Middle, glove side third, right below the uh, right below the kneecap, and then bounce a couple on the point of the plate. Those are pretty much the tools that I had to make sure I had ready to go out in the, into the game. And then cutter um, down the middle, and then to the glove side third of the plate. So go through those from the windup. Then we go through the, again from the stretch after we take probably a two-minute break, drink a little Gatorade, drink a little water, check the time, make sure we have you know probably at this point 10 ish minutes to go um you know after that two minute break we got about probably about eight minutes you know four or five of them from the stretch then we go back to the wind up and we go a couple of simulated hitters or whatever is kind of left over so this could be garbage time where all right my change up kind of stinks let's throw a couple more and you know it's just uh Maybe the slider is not breaking. So we throw a couple more of those. It's just about trying to find out, okay, what's left on the list. We got tools one through nine are warmed up and they're all good. But tools 10 and 11, which is the curveball bouncing on the plate and the fastball elevated. Those two are, I didn't really throw those very well. So let's throw a couple more of those or it's all right. Who's up first. So John Smith's leading off. Let's do a simulated four pitch sequence of John Smith. And then lefty Joe Smith is on deck. You know, he's the two hitter. Let's do a simulated uh, four-pitch sequence to him. And then we check the time. All right, we have four minutes till game time. Last Last sip of Gatorade, you know, go through the line, give knuckles to all the guys in the bullpen. Then you walk down, you're in the dugout with two minutes before the anthem starts. Sit, get yourself collected, go out, national anthem, and then game time. So it's extremely important. You know, they think it's nitpicky. Well, I don't know that people think it's nitpicky, but they just it's just overlooked until someone who played a high level and values routine just lays it down. Like, hey, this is how you do it. You want to make sure that you're ready to go on time, not before and not after. So, you know, some guys like to be in the in the dugout a little earlier, some guys like to be there a little later. I didn't like to sit in the dugout very long when I was a starter. I just want to be in the dugout just enough time to take my jacket off. Take a deep breath, get a little Gatorade, and go, and then go. Other guys, they want to be in the dugout five minutes for uh, their call for the anthem. So they can just sit, kind of relax, you know, last a uh, couple minutes themselves in their head, whatever it was. Everyone's a little bit different, but regardless, everyone has a time when they want to be in the dugout and ready to go out to the game. So whatever that time is, you just backtrack. So if it's a 7.05 start, anthem's at 7.02, that means, you know, for me, I'm in the dugout at seven. For another guy, it might be 657. And then you say, okay, 657, I need 38 minutes to warm up. So, you know, we're going to start our routine at 721. Uh, is that math right? I don't know. I'm not going to check it. 6, 619, who cares? So, you know, that stuff is really important. And a lot of young pitchers, they don't get that right. They don't time it out. So one of the things that we did recently to practice is we just wrote them out. I said, all right. Here's when you're, when you're going to be in the dugout, we're going to say one Oh one Oh two for one Oh five start. And your routine starts at, uh, takes 46 minutes. So I want you to write out all 46 minutes worth of your pre-game routine, be as specific as you can, write exactly what you're going to do, how long it's going to take and what you're going to do with it. So, you know, that little exercise is important. It's something that you, know, you can wrap your head around, you start to hone it over time, it starts to become yours. And uh, you know, it just helps make sure that if you pitch really well today or you don't pitch well today, we know for a fact that the variable at play that caused either the good performance or the bad performance was not your routine. We just wanna isolate as many variables as we can so we know what to blame things on and what things we do need to improve on when uh, things go well or things don't go so well. Number five, runs are runs. I was super-duper guilty of this in many different stages of my playing career. I sort of valued batted runs as high priority to prevent, meaning I focused on getting hitters out. But then once hitters got on base, I forgot about them, and I didn't really focus on keeping them where they are and preventing them from just slowly meandering around the bases. I was not a. I was not good at holding runners. I didn't focus on it. I didn't practice my pickoff moves. I didn't think about ways I could improve at that. So once a guy got on, whether well, there's a walk or a hit or whatever. He was pretty likely to steal second base on me, and then I'm just like, eh, shrug my shoulders. I'll just keep pitching. And then I keep pitching. They move him over. Then a sac fly scores him, and it's a cheap run, and cheap runs add up over time. So. A lot of pitchers, they just only have the mental bandwidth to do a couple things at a time, and they tend to, you know, ignore the runners or they're too afraid to throw over. I mean, that's a thing too. Or they just don't feel like it's a desperate situation every time they look over there. But we need to understand stealing situations, like when they are, when they're not, and what our game plan is to keep those guys at bay. So, like, for me, I was not a guy who liked picking off. I tried to avoid picking off the base as much as I could. I wasn't afraid of it. I didn't mail throws. I didn't have the yips or anything like that. I just honestly just didn't feel like doing it. So my goal was to do as little picking off as I could while still keeping runners at bay. So I knew when I had to hold a guy on. So if a, a fast guy got on base, especially the year I, I pitched as the setup man for the the River Sharks, uh, you know we were pitching and runs were a premium on our team. Our offense struggled. And so usually when I came in, it was a one-run leader, a tie game. And I knew I couldn't let that guy get on second base because then I was just a blooper away, you know, an unpreventable, uh, unlucky ground ball away from a tie game. So you got to keep him on first base. So if he's fast, if he has any idea that he's going uh, to steal, it was just vary my timing, pick off on the first pitch for sure, probably pick off on the second pitch because those are the two most likely times that they'll go. And then just work really hard to make him uncomfortable, you know, so four-second hold, one-second hold, three-second hold, five-second hold, pick, two-second hold. And then obviously whenever I'm going to throw an off-speed pitch, I would work extra hard on that one to discourage him from going. That's just called protecting your pitches. So if I was going to throw a curveball, you know, it's 0-1. If he chooses that pitch, he's going to be safe. So I throw over a couple times maybe to make sure, hey, I'm going to get you and trying to just hold him there. So runs are runs, whether it's a walk, a stolen base, a sack fly, and another sack fly, um, it's the same as a home run. But pitchers tend to forget that all runs are equal and that you can't just forget about the guys once they go in first base. You have to hold them on. You have to focus on l- limiting bases as much as you can. And so little things l- on top of that. You know, It's not covering bases, uh, not backing up throwing to the wrong base. Um, maybe you're not paying attention. You know, I saw this in a Division One game recently. Um, my alma mater was playing Mizzou, and their starting pitcher, I think the seventh inning, got a comebacker with a runner on first and second and one out, and he got it, and then just, like, casually turned him through to first base. And then everyone's was like, dude, what were you doing? Why didn't you throw to second base? Like, it was an easy double play. It was one of those, like, can of corn, hard one-hop ground balls right into his glove. You know, easy double play. If he takes one shuffle, throws firm on a line to second base, it's a double play, and the inning's over. He just forgot what he was doing. And that stuff happens to all of us occasionally, but it really can't happen, you know. There was a time, uh, and I can still, f- like, photographically remember this because it was getting towards the end of the season, cost me an important run, and that season my ERA was one run over four. So, like, a 4.03 for the season – and when it came down to the last couple of days of the year, I was really trying to get it below a four, which is not really a big deal, but it's just like one of those little tiny milestones that, you know, if you're hitting 299 at the end of the season, you might really want to hit 300 instead of 299, even though it's only an infinitesimal difference. But I, uh, I threw an inside fastball, and when it left my hand, it was kind of like going to one of those locations where I didn't expect him to swing at it. And then he did swing, barreled it up, smashed it down the first baseline as a left-handed hitter. And our first baseman dove and gloved it and got it. And I just was like, the whole thing just threw me off. So I like left my hand, didn't see thinking he was gonna swing. He did swing, hit a missile. I like look, kind of looked over, was still, I don't know, it was just like in a fog. And then by the time I realized that he had smashed it, it was fair, and our first baseman had it in his glove, I was too late getting off the mound. The guy beat me to first base, and uh, and w- was safe, so I just let him get on first, and he came around to score. So obviously, it screwed our team. It screwed me, and it was just one of these foggy moments where I just like spaced out and was kind of watching the play. I would kind of watch the line drive and watch my first baseman dive, and like, ooh, pretty dive. And it's like, oh crap, I'm supposed to be there, and it was too late. So that stuff happens. Um, it just it just can't happen. So runs are runs doesn't matter how they get on how they score you don't get any medals for oh it was only just a couple walks and a couple singles that you know scored four runs rather than like a bunch of doubles and a home run or two you know there's no no better way than the other you just we have to minimize the amount of extra bases they get we have to minimize all the silly things that we do for getting to backup bases you know just poorly feeling our position because again runs are runs we need to prevent even the little ones from scoring. Number six, people are always watching. So I I do credit my meek professional career getting off the ground because of professionalism. That year I was in spring training with normal. My first year, 2010, I was the only guy they hadn't seen in spring training. I had and I told this story before, but I was the only guy that was in spring training as at least. As far as the pitchers went, uh, who they hadn't seen play. I just kind of networked my way in there. Three different coaches called on my behalf saying that I was worthy of having them, you know, of being in camp. They said, you should give this guy a shot. So they did. Uh, and, you know, as the only guy they hadn't seen, I was the only guy they didn't know what they had. So I conducted myself well. I didn't talk up a lot. I was just there to do my job and really nothing more. So, Every time I touched the ball, I touched it with purpose. Every time I did something, I did it to the best of my ability. I did it hard. You know, we had PFPs and all that standard boring stuff, but I treated it like a game. Um, You just never know who's watching. You never know what they're watching for, and it's preached by coaches every single day. That character is how you act when no one's watching, blah, blah, blah. All the cliches in the world about you know people are always watching but it's still 100 percent true and going back to the very first thing i mentioned this in this episode is that it takes years and years and years and tons of repetition for things to finally sink in so i'm going to say it one more time because it's going to sink in at some point people are always watching professionalism does not go unnoticed and even if you're the small guy who doesn't stick out physically Some everyone is watching your movements still and you will get seen over time. And they will figure out who you are as a person and as a player. So you got to be conscious of how you're carrying yourself at all times. And on top of that, professionalism just ensures consistency. Having a routine and a reason you're doing the things that you're doing and purpose in doing them when you do them is huge. It's how you get better it's uh it's all the little things over time because just imagine like you say you have one of those huge jars uh full of pennies and quarters and nickels and dimes that people have where they just you know have one of those big jars where they throw all their change in there and they you know it's like those big water bottle jars you know for the office uh water cooler and over you know a year or so you might have you know two feet worth of change tons and tons and tons and tons of change And so finally the day comes where you're going to cash that change in and do something fun with it. So you dump all the change out and on your floor, you have this huge pile and what do you grab first? You grab the biggest coins, So you grab the quarters first and you're just grabbing and grabbing. You're making this huge pile of quarters and you feel really good about yourself because quarters add up fast. And then when most of the quarters are gone, you start to grab probably the dimes. Even though they're smaller, you probably grab the dimes because they're worth more. So then you start to grab all the dimes. And then you go for the shiny silver nickels after that and grab all the nickels. So, you know, in Division I baseball, everyone's got all the quarters. Every one of your teammates, they're the best of the best in high school. They've got Everyone's got all the quarters, okay? The guys that make it to the minor leagues, those are the guys that also decided that they need to keep filling their pockets and they're grabbing all the dimes. The guys that start to rise higher in the minor leagues are the ones that grab all the, the 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 nickels. But guys are still leaving a lot of change on the table, so there's tons and tons and tons and tons of pennies. And so you know, once all the nickels are gone, that you begrudgingly reach for the pennies, which are just basically junk. And there's so many of them, and they're worth so little that you just don't real feel very motivated to reach for them. But Some guys reach for more. Some guys reach for less. Some guys are satisfied with their huge stash of quarters and and dimes. Some guys are not satisfied with just the quarters and dimes. They want the nickels too, Um, even though it's more work to count them and to collect them and they're heavy and they weigh them down. And then finally, there's all this big sea of pennies that no one really wants. You know, they're heavy. It takes a million of them to add up. But when everyone else has got all the quarters and the dimes and the nickels, the people that make it to the highest they focus on the little things yes the pennies suck and it takes a lot of them to make any sort of dent or well, not dent but add to your bank account but they add up over time and so the question is are you willing to continue to grab for the worthless little pennies do the little things right and expect that over time you'll be rewarded for that and it just comes back to the first couple things we mentioned which are what do you do every single time you switch a ball, even when it's throwing at 40 miles per hour at 40 feet away? Are you getting something out of that throw? That's like a penny, you know, having your fun, long, toss session when it's sunny out, you know, that's a quarter or getting your workout in with your headphones in. That's a quarter. The harder things are just like the minute things, you know, doing your boring arm care, um, staying after the, after the game while everyone else is showering and leaving, You know, to to do your stretches that you know you need to do or to find a place to go meditate before the game because, you know, it helps you pitch a little bit better. All those little things that add up, you know, your professionalism, the way you carry yourself, the food you eat. Do you get enough sleep? Do you make time for all just the little tiny details? Those are the pennies. Those are the things that add up over time to separate someone else. Everyone else is happy with quarters and nickels and dimes, the shiny stuff that adds up quick. But the pennies that add up slowly and are tough and take effort to roll up and stuff in your bank account, those are the things that end up separating people at the end. Lastly, number seven, you know, emotion governs a lot of things that happen on the mound. And I'll, I'll tell you a story that I think I've told on this podcast before, but it was, uh, it was 2015 and... I was in the middle of like one of my slumps where wasn't pitching well, and I lost my role. And so I was called to come into a game. I think it was like the sixth or the seventh inning, where another one of our relievers who had been throwing really well uh, loaded the bases with no one out. So they yanked him. They put me in. Bases loaded, no one out. We're in Long Island, and uh, I had not been pitching super well, so I got kind of you know tough tough opportunities like that. But I was excited to hopefully help get out of it and. Kind of re earn my status. So I get into that game, strike out the first guy, strike out the second guy. So now, uh, t- in taking it one step at a time, one pitch at a time, I had kind of dug my way out of this. So I got two outs, and I was okay. When you get two outs, now nothing hard is left because getting out of a bases loaded jam with no run scoring is extremely difficult because basically they can't hit the ball on at the very least the first at bat and you really can't control that stuff as a pitcher you know you can only control control one strike at a time if they swing they're gonna swing and if they hit it a run is gonna score almost all the time you know only a pop-up or a comebacker uh, is gonna prevent a run from scoring on that first out with no outs so I did the hard stuff I got the first two outs and it's like all right all I have to do I don't have to worry about punching this guy out or getting a pop-up because uh, you can't induce pop-ups; they just happen. Um, I just have to pitch well, get him to swing the bat, induce you know weak contact, and get a fly ball or ground ball, and I bailed us out of this bases loaded, no one out jam. Well, we, uh, my catcher and I decided that a chained up for the first pitch on this last hitter was the right pitch, and me being a guy who sometimes struggles with off-speed stuff, I. Got a little nervous about trying to throw a for a strike, kind of got the yips, and threw it 83 miles per hour over my catcher's head right to the backstop. So I just like tensed up, and this changeup went about 12 feet in the air right over the catcher's head, and uh, the runner scored from third. Other two runners moved up to second and third, and I was just so freaking pissed at myself. There I was, I had like dug myself out. I had done all the hard work that was required and I just gave them a free run. I was so pissed that I like couldn't see straight. I was just, I I cannot remember a single moment in my career where I was more angry at myself, just absolutely furious, livid, that I'd been so stupid to get the yips. I was dominating. I was throwing the ball everywhere I wanted to go. I was just carving guys up. And yet here I was, got nervous for no reason, about a pitch I had thrown already that inning and uh, and chucked to the backstop. The problem was I couldn't get over my anger. I was so pissed that I just could not get past it. And the next pitch, fastball, also a ball. And then there I was, 2-0, and second and third. And all it took now was just one single to score all three runs in that inning because I let that guy score, you know, those two moved up and now just a blooper i was going to cash all three of my friends runs so i was in a tough spot where i could have gone from hero to goat in basically just one bad pitch so i just but i just couldn't get past it there's just i was just out of control emotionally i you probably could have seen like fire and smoke coming out of my ears but i just Fell behind. I think I got to like 3-1, and he just popped the ball up or hit like a fly ball to center field or something. And that's baseball. Sometimes you make terrible pitches. I think I threw it like right down the middle, basically 3-1, and he just missed it. Uh, that's baseball. That stuff happens. I got really lucky, and as I walked off the mound, I knew how lucky I was. I was just so mad that uh, at just at that one pass ball, that uh, wild pitch, that I I just took myself out of the rest of the inning. So emotion governs everything that happens on the mound, but it, it governs your command. So when you get nervous, when you get scared, um, when you start to think about the consequences, your control goes away. And no one in North America really values mental training. They don't value sports psychology. Sports psychology is one of those terms where when I hear people say, I want to be a sports psychologist, I just like, don't know what to say to them because no one values sports psychologists. It seems like no one ever thinks they have a problem. They, they go out there, they implode, but they don't want to go see sports psychologists because that means you're like messed up or something. I don't know. Sports psychology is, has some amazing things to teach our athletes, but people in in the United States tend to just dismiss it. It's not part of any young athletes training regimen. It's all physical stuff. And when they go out there and they implode, it's just, well, oh, well, kids don't want to sit still. They have, you know, it's it's basically just training that no one wants. Um, obviously, there's value in it. I believe very deeply in it. Um, meditation changed the course of my career after my third season and uh, or after my second season. And there's 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 tons of value in it. And they value it in other countries. You hear the culture of um, other Olympic athletes from the Far East, from Europe, how big uh, mental training and visual, visualization is. And has been for eons and eons and eons of time. But in the United States, it's just like not ingrained in the culture of sports, especially not at the youth level. It's it's really just something that you only start to get when you need it, when you're struggling, when you've already got the yips. You've already you're already in a place basically where you're already hurt mentally. You know, a lot of kids don't do any kind of arm care or re or preventative shoulder strengthening stuff until they're hurt right and then mental training is the same thing you don't do anything with it until you need it until your your career is not gonna is grinding to a halt without it um and really it should just be a, a preventive thing that helps you stay stress-free and um and just strong mentally and it just be part of your daily regimen just like you go to school to learn and and you learn to socialize and and get better at relationships and and Expressing yourself, all that sort of stuff. I mean, mental training should be a part of every athlete's regimen, but it isn't. But with all this stuff, emotional control has physical benefits and physical, um, it can be your physical detriment if you're not under control. So whether it's the pressure of the situation, whether it's the consequences that you're aware of, whether it's your fear, whether it's The umpire screwing you a little bit, whether hitter's too close to the batter's box or too close to the plate, he's too far up in the batter's box, all these different things. When you start to think about the situation, whatever it is, your command starts to to waver. And so in your bullpens, there should be a mental component. If you have time to do it, where you're thinking about basically nothing, you know, once you come set, and uh, if you read my recent article, although I shouldn't say recent because you know, today's March 16th, but you might listen to this podcast at any point in the future. But I wrote an article for EliteBaseballPerformance.com called The Thought Process of a Big Game Pitcher. And every pitcher has a, a checklist that he goes through of all the, the obvious things when he's off the mountain. So how many outs are there? What's the situation? Where are the runners? What's the score? What inning is it? What base am I covering uh, on a double in the gap? Where am I going with a comebacker? Where am I going with a bunt? Which side of the field do I cover for a bunt? Um, all those sort of things. So that's the basic stuff. You go over that in your head so that you don't have to think about it once you come set and you're about to deliver your pitch. You know, and that's just the basics. So then once you start to get on the bottom of the mound, this is kind of like zone two. You think of okay, you kind of reinstall your thoughts. So okay. Uh situation again first and second well who are those runners? Well, it's a fat guy on first He's not going anywhere, but a really fast guy on second. Okay. what? how many outs are there? What's the score? Well, it's two to one in the seventh So they might try to steal se- they might try to steal second and third here because there's no out or there's one out so it makes sense for them to do it. Okay, that means I probably need to hold that guy on second pretty well Then you say okay. Well, is there a lefty or righty up in the box? Well, there's a righty so He's definitely got the green light to steal third You know, if it's a lefty, he probably doesn't. So who's the batter now? Well, kind of slight kid who's got a little bit of opposite field, uh, you know, a little bit of opposite field power, but um, really not much of a threat. So, okay, how did he do? Well, he's two for two today with a single and a double. Okay. What pitches did he hit? Well, he hit a single that was on a changeup kind of up and over the plate, so that doesn't tell me much. But then he hit a pretty good fastball, a little bit, you know, low and away, and then he drove it pretty well. So okay, how are we going to attack this guy? So you're starting to formulate your game plan a little bit on the bottom of the mound. Then when you straddle the rubber, you're waiting for the batter to finish his warm up swings, and you're starting to get into the box. You say, okay, uh, what am I thinking that I want to throw here, and am I going to pitch, or and am am I going to pick, or am I going to pitch on this first pitch? So if it's a big stealing threat. You probably need to pick on the first pitch because it's the most important pitch to pick on. Um, And if not, okay, what do I want the catcher to put down? Okay, I think I want to cut her inside on this lefty's hands. Um, And then you come step on the rubber, get your sign, you know, figure it out with your catcher. And then you come set. And by the time you come set, everything that you could possibly need to consider should be have already, should already have been thought about and considered so that you have hundred percent of your bandwidth now available to making your pitch to the to the plate so at the end of that whole process when you are come set and you're ready to deliver there should be nothing between you and the mitt it's just be this tractor beam focus where there's no consequences there's no what am i doing on a comebacker there's no should i hold this runner should i pick all that sh- stuff should have been already settled so that your brain has just one task and one task only which is executing This single pitch. And if you do that, it helps you control your emotions, control the consequences, control the fear of failure, the fear of succeeding, all these different things. It helps to get it all under control and make each pitch manageable. And at the end of the day, pitchers are not robots. No athlete is a robot. Baseball, especially with all the downtime and when pitching especially, being the center of attention on each pitch, it's... Nerve-wracking, there's lots of time to get in your own head and screw it up. That's why so many guys make it to the minor leagues and never sniff the majors, myself included. Um, I struggled to throw off-speed pitch because I was in my head about it. I mean, that's just the way it is, pretty plain and simple. So um, we have to have all that stuff in check, and mental training is a huge part of it. And we just have to realize how much our emotions are in control of our body because they play a really, really huge impact on our ability to execute the physical things that we're capable of doing. Uh, we can hold ourselves back or we can execute with relative ease. It just depends on how strong we are and how well we can flip that switch off when it's time to execute and do our job. So that's it for today. Uh, just seven things, even though like half of them were all kind of like the same thing. Um, you know, basically just routine stuff, but you know, it just takes a long time for any athlete to really, for, for the lessons that athletes need to learn, for them to really be driven into their brain where they become second nature. And so, you know, basic things pitchers forget is, uh, I think, an apt title for this episode because it just takes so long for you to really remember. And all these things start to go to the wayside when you get back into the game. And the game's exciting. You're happy to be out there. You're competing. But with all that, we sort of lose some of our mental bandwidth and then find it a little bit tougher to, to pitch at the level that we want to. So we'll see you here next week uh, for episode 38 of Dear Baseball Gods. Next week uh, for episode